<laughs> we want to welcome our online audience. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's always a privilege and a blessing having you worship together with us. Well, we are continuing in our series on the Upside Down Kingdom, which is a series in the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew 5 through 7. I've entitled today's message, Looks Can Kill. And I think as we read the text, you will understand why I derived that title. So if you want to turn in your Bibles or follow along on the screen, we're in Matthew chapter 5, and we've come down to verse 27, where Jesus says to those that are gathered there on the mount with him, as he addresses specifically his disciples. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that the words of Jesus would come home to each and every one of us with a message to our individual hearts as to how you are asking that we respond to this word. How we respond to the demand of discipleship that you've placed upon each and every one of us who've said yes to you, Lord, I want to follow you. But we know that it's not in words it's indeed, and it's how we live our lives that we are truly your disciples. So speak to us this morning, we pray, and we will praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. <clears throat> amen. Well, if you've been reading ahead in this uh, passage of scripture, you will notice in Matthew chapter five in this section that there is this repetition of these words. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Every time I read, and as obviously I've been spending a, a lot of time in Matthew 5, and in particular in this section as I've been, pre been preparing these messages, but every time I land, my eyes land on those words, it just gives me great pause. You have heard it said, and I have to ask myself, what have I heard it said when Jesus comes and says, but I say unto you. See, what we've heard said develops for us our worldview. What we've heard said uh, develops and comprises our belief system which determines how we live our lives. But we need to ask ourselves from time to time, 
what I believe, is it really based in what Jesus said? When Jesus came to the earth, he came upon a religious scene that was filled with the tradition of men. And Jesus sets the record straight by telling them, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. Once in a confrontation that Jesus had with the religious leaders of his day, he rebuked them with these words, which should challenge each and every one of us today. We find those words in Mark's gospel, chapter 7. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Those are very sobering words. Teaching as doctrine. Telling people, this is what God is requiring of you. And saying, this is the command of God when it was only the command of man. Now, I'm, I'm probably older than just about every one of you in this church. And maybe you don't remember what it was like yesteryear in a lot of Christian churches. There was a lot of tradition. And we lived our lives based on that tradition that was nowhere to be found in God's word. We thought the standard of holiness was that women were not allowed to wear makeup. They were not allowed to cut their hair. They had to wear a covering on their head when they walked into the church. And we had all of these silly, silly rules. When in reality, we served God with our lips, but very often our hearts were far from him. It begs the question this morning, that we all examine our Christian experience. We examine our spiritual experience and ask ourselves, is the life that I am living today rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it rooted in religious tradition with which I was raised? And that challenges us in particular as we consider this Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus spoke it, he spoke it to those who were serious followers of Jesus Christ. Not the religious, not the half-hearted, not those who were following only the traditions of men outwardly appearing to be holy. That's what the uh, Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees, I mean, they'd prance about with their religious garb. They'd walk about with their phylacteries as if the word of God was their, their chief objective and passion. When they were straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel and their hearts were really far from God. But when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we need to remind ourselves that this is three chapters of red letters. 
coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ himself, and we are forced to decide, am I truly going to be a disciple? And it's not about what I heard when I was growing up, that, you know, sometimes the things that we hear when we're growing up, they, they get embedded in us, and it's hard to change a mindset. It's just really hard. We see that in our culture today. That if, if you're raised with a certain bias, it's, it's hard to look at the facts and see that the facts deny that bias because that's not what it is at all. And that's why it's been said, give me a child until he's seven and I will have him forever because things get inculcated into our spirit and we embrace that as truth when very often it is not truth. And as devoted disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that there are not two ways to serve Jesus. Serving him on Sunday when we're in the church building and then serving ourselves when we walk out of the church building on Monday morning and live the kind of life that we want to live. These red letters of Jesus demand that we make a decision. We either are with him or we are against him. And I did not say that, Jesus did. Out of his mouth he said these words, He who is not with me is against me. There's no middle ground. We're either all in or all out. We can't have it both ways. And that's the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount. Some people look at this, these three chapters and say, oh, I just love the Sermon on the Mount. And they talk about the Beatitudes and all these pious platitudes that almost seem poetic and they sound so beautiful and the words are beautiful. But when you dig into this sermon, you see Jesus lays it on the line. If you're going to be my disciple, this is what is going to be required of you. And so he's speaking in particular in this section of Matthew 5 to an audience of people who have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And they think because they've never shot anyone that they've fulfilled that commandment of the Lord. But Jesus said, I say unto you, what do you have in your heart? What's your attitude toward your brother in your heart? How do you feel? What do you say? What are you speaking concerning your brother? That's what makes all the difference in the world. And so in this last section of uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is refuting that, that allegation that has come against him. Jesus, you're supposed to be a Jew and you're supposed to be a, a learned rabbi, but, but why do you always seem to be down on the law of Moses? Not by what you say, but how you live. You, you don't follow the law of Moses. What were they upset about? They weren't. Jesus would not follow the traditions of men. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to uphold it. And in this last section of chapter 5, there are six examples that Jesus gives where he shows, you have heard it said, this is what you think, but this is what I say. If you really want to enter the kingdom of God, and we read those sober, sobering words in verse 20, for I tell you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are sobering words. Because if you lived in Jesus' day, there was no righteousness that was higher than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, they were the standard. Everyone looked up to them. They followed the letter of the law in, in, in its minutest iota. Straining at a gnat, but swallowing a camel. And so they, they believed that if I don't kill a person, then I've obeyed the sixth commandment. But Jesus enlarged on it. As I've already paraphrased, don't think that you've kept the law because you never put a bullet in someone's head, but know that you've committed murder when you hold hostility and hatred and anger in your heart toward others. What is Jesus pointing out here? He's pointing out that sin is first not an act, but it is an issue of the heart. You know, the rabbis were well known to have said, the eye and the heart are the two agents of sin. And you think about that for a moment and you'll come to see that that is in truth the reality of what precipitates all sin. It begins with the eye, it begins with the heart. Since hatred of the heart is murder, in today's text, Jesus is going to show us that lust in the heart is adultery. See, in the previous passage that we looked at, the last we were together, Jesus dealt with the issue of the sanctity of life. And in today's passage of Scripture, we see he deals with the issue of the sanctity of marriage as he moves from the sixth now to the seventh commandment. You have heard that it was said. We all know the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. We're all aware of what adultery is. It's when a married person has a, 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 an affair, an extramarital affair with someone who is not their spouse. And that's actually what the Jews of Jesus' day believed constituted adultery. And actually, that's what we believe. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is going to challenge that definition that we've long believed to be really what constitutes adultery. And he says in verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying if you think you've kept God's commandment against adultery simply because you've never had an extramarital affair, you are sadly, sorely mistaken. See what Jesus is doing here? Once again, he is elevating the demand of this requirement as God intended it. And he brings into focus this reality and this fact that when we have lust in our heart, we are guilty of breaking that seventh commandment. Yeah, we've limited this sin to what we do with our bodies. And we pat ourselves on the shoulder, don't we? Well, I've never had an extramarital affair. I'm, I'm a man of high morals, but the Sermon on the Mount says 
not so fast. Do you understand the level of purity that I require of you? It has to do with what you see with your eyes. It has to do what you are fantasizing about in your imagination. It has to do with what the lust is concerning what you desire to do. And by the way, notice Jesus didn't say anyone who looks at a woman. Let, let's get clear here. God created us as sexual beings. And he created us with an attraction to the opposite sex. That's how God designed us. That is how God created us. The issue is not the attraction. The issue is the lust that ensues. So what does it mean to have lust? In the epistle of James, he gives us a really great understanding of what lust is. And in James 1, 14 and 15, I want to draw your attention to that passage of scripture. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You need to underscore those words, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You know, we're familiar with the passage of scripture that says God tempts no man to evil. And that's actually in this passage in James. So how does, how does evil happen? <laughs> James puts it right where it is. The evil is in the heart. The lust, the desire, the wrong desire is in the heart. And when there is some bait that is put out there that my heart sees, it is attracted to that bait. And that's where lust begins. And then conception takes place, which is determined about by how we respond to when we see that bait and that attraction. It's been uh, said, you cannot help the first look, but it's the second that is sin. And isn't that so clearly, uh, practically demonstrated in the life of King David? The blot upon the life of that man who is after God's own heart was this sin of adultery that he committed. How did it happen? The first problem was the scripture says when kings go out to battle, David stayed at home. He wasn't where he belonged to be. And it's not my purpose to talk about the progress and process of temptation. But David stayed home, and one night to get a breath of fresh air, he decided to go out on his balcony. He was living in a palace, as we know, and it overlooked the city of Jerusalem. It was higher than all the other homes of the common people. And that evening, when he stepped out onto his balcony to get that breath of fresh air, he looked, and behold, he saw upon the rooftop of one of the homes nearby, Bathsheba, who was bathing. 
and we know the sordid story that ensues. Now let's be clear. David's first notice of Bathsheba was not yet sin. The reality is we see things all the time. You, you can't, you're driving down the road and something just hits you right in the face. You can't help it. That is life in this human body. The problem is what do we do with that, with what we see? And how do we respond? Do we immediately acknowledge, ah, I need to turn my head quickly before I take that second look? If I look again and set my gaze, I will have fallen into the trap that Satan set for me and I will have taken the bait. And isn't that exactly what David did? He continued to look. And as he continued to look, he lusted. As he continued to look, he stayed, he pondered, and lust filled his heart. David, unlike Job, did not make a covenant with his eyes. Job said, I made a covenant. Literally, I've made an agreement, a divine pact that these eyes will never look upon a young maiden with lust. Yes, you might be naturally attracted. You, you take that first glance and you turn your head. So when did David commit adultery with Bathsheba? The question is asked, and most people answered, well, when David called for her and he slept with her. But that's not how Jesus would have answered that question. David committed adultery because instead of looking away, he looked upon Bathsheba and lusted. That's such a huge challenge for us in the day and age in which we live, especially because we have computers. Temptation abounds on every hand, and... It can so subtly overtake us. How many times are you on your phone, on your computer, on your uh, tablet, and you're reading a news story, you're just reading something innocently, and as you're continuing to read down, all of a sudden, this little thumbnail comes up, and it's something sensual that just attracts you because you're human. You're drawn to it. It's because we have the lust of our eyes that we need to contend with. And we're tempted to click on it. Do you know that at the moment of that temptation, you still have not sinned? The sin happens instead of exiting your browser, instead of saying, I'm not going to look any further on this page because if I entertain the thought, I just may fall into that sin. He that thinketh he standeth, let him take heed, lest he fall. See, initially, it all seems so innocent, doesn't it? Sin always begins with no glaring immoral act. It begins with just a desire, just something that grabs our attention. But what does the scripture say? Sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. Where did it land David? It's one of the saddest stories in the Bible. I don't know how long it was. I, I didn't look it up, but 
until David truly repented. He was living a lie and living outside of the grace and the goodness of God and was the most miserable man on the face of the earth until he was confronted by the prophet Nathan who told that sad story of this poor little family that had one little lamb when David had flocks of lambs, as it were, a harem of women that he could have had. But Uriah had only one wife. And he stole that wife from Uriah and then planned her murder. And when David hears that story, he's enraged because he had a heart of justice, right? He was a man of integrity and righteousness. How dare any man think that he could commit such a crime as this? When the prophet Nathan says, David, thou art the man. Had David known the consequences of the sin that he committed, I believe he would have turned in horror at that moment he looked upon Bathsheba and run the other way. But how often do we lose sight of the fact that our enemy is so cunning, he is so sly, sin comes with a great cost, but it's hidden. We remember that familiar quote, don't we, that brings us face to face with the reality of what happens when we fall prey. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. So it behoves us, Christian friends, we must not be ignorant of Satan's devices. He's crafty. He's a schemer. And guess what? He knows our vulnerabilities and he's waiting for that split second when we let down our guard and he finds a little crack in our armor and he rushes in and we're taken unaware. And that's especially so with sexual temptation, unlike others. I came upon these words that describe it so poignantly Sexual temptation is like an undertow that captures those who are unaware, that are merely waiting by the beach, and then suddenly find themselves swept out to sea in danger of being drowned. But sadly, these are actually excited about going on this adventure, clueless as to the minefield that they are entering. This is serious, serious business. I know Jesus is talking about adultery, but he's really talking about the issue of the heart that if we are really going to be his disciples, we need to have pure hearts and clean hands. And so Jesus explains that if you have a problem in this area with purity, then to safeguard yourself, there are some radical, radical steps that need to be taken. Jesus explains that in verses 29 and 30 of our text. If your right eye causes you to sin, that word is if your right eye offends you, I'm going to talk about what that word is in a minute. 
gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Do we hear what Jesus is saying here? You know, some people that love that doctrine of eternal security, once saved, always saved. I'm sorry, but to me that opens the door to believe that I could commit any sin that I want to sin and there's always, always going to be forgiveness. Paul said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And yet there's that belief, there's that you've heard it said, but I say unto you, you're going to get thrown into hell. We're living in a day and age where people take this issue of the, the requirement of the disciple to live a holy, pure, and chaste life just so lightly, so glibly. Oh, I could dabble in just a little internet pornography. It's not going to hurt. After all, you know, I'm human. After all, I'm not going out and committing the act. It's in the privacy of my own home. Do you want to get thrown into hell? If your right hand that turns that computer on causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now clearly Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. He's not suggesting in any way that we take this literally, that we pluck out our eyes or we cut off our hands. And even though we know that down through the years, there were those who took Jesus' words literally and they did something to their bodies, thinking that if they did that, because Jesus said so, that I won't have a problem with lust anymore. But guess what? Even though they didn't have a right eye, they still had a left eye. And even though they didn't have a right hand, they still had a left hand, and they found ways to accommodate and entertain lust. Jesus is not demanding, obviously, mutilation of our body, but he is demanding mortification of our flesh. And we don't like that word mortify, because that means kill. That means destroy. That means put to death. You don't coddle it. You don't say, well, I'm going to put it to sleep. No, you take a knife. You put it into the heart. You, this is something we need to be dead serious about. Because Satan has a subtle, sly, conniving way of just twisting our minds that we're able to now whitewash and justify and rationalize something that has the potential to destroy our very souls. Notice that also Jesus called it our right eye or our right hand. You know, when you spoke in the scripture, when you speak of right, it always symbolically spoke of your very best. When in the scripture it says, he's the son of my right hand, that meant he's the son of my strength. I, I had him when I was young and strong and courageous and brave. That, that's, that's who he is. He, he was born out of my loins, out of that kind of strength. So Jesus is saying that which is your right eye 
That which you see is your best strength. That which you feel is most dear, most precious, most valuable to you. If it causes you to fall into sin, get rid of it. Even if it is your right eye or your right hand. If what you touch causes you to sin, then live as though you don't have a hand that will cause you to fall into that sin. It's far better to live without that part than to risk being cast into hell. Interesting that the word that Jesus uses here when he says, if your right hand offend you, is the word scandalon in the Greek language, which we get the word scandal from, but it really means bait. And I've already alluded to, to that to us earlier this morning, that it, it's a stumbling block. It, it's a stone of offense. It's something that causes you to trip over. It's right in your path, and you're about to fall headlong, flat on your face. But when you see that trap, you stop immediately, and you change your direction. It behooves us this morning to really take a close look at what are the triggers in our lives. What are the things that trip us up? What are the things that entrap us? What are those things that make us lose out with the Lord? And then we find ourselves in sin and the guilt and the shame. Don't you hate being in those seasons? And the enemy then really lies to us. How can you say you love God? And then we're ashamed to even go to God and ask for forgiveness. When God is saying, here I am. I paid for that sin. Come with a repentant heart. Come with a contrite spirit. Come and I will freely forgive. But make a decision. Go and sin no more. Be willing to do that radical moral surgery that excises out of you, out of your life, out of your surroundings, out of your mentality, anything that would trip you up that is a source of offense. There must be nothing so precious in our life that we're not willing to sacrifice and to sever. You know, God has us on this earth. We think it's a long time. We want to live to be a hundred. In fact, one of the favorite expressions Italians have is cento anni. That means a hundred years. You wish somebody happy birthday? Cento anni. Oh, you're only 75. You've got 25 years to go yet. And we think, oh, they died at 95 years old. They lived a long life. Yes, by earthly standards. But how does 95 years compare to an eternity with years that have no end? I know the human brain can't wrap itself around the idea of infinity. No end. The years roll by, year after year after year after year, 100 years, 1,000 years, billion years, trillion years. Never ends. But how we live in eternity is now going to be determined by how we live these 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years on this earth. 
And Satan is dangling that bait saying, don't you want to taste this apple? Do we want to risk losing our eternal inheritance for a bite out of a silly apple? The pleasures of sin for a season, but then the reward is heartache and pain, guilt and shame, and sometime life-altering circumstances. How many of those who've committed adultery have lost their homes, their families, their children just for a moment of pleasure? So what are we willing to risk away this morning? Why do we fritter away opportunities? Why, why do we spend meaningless hours upon hours on activities that have no edification or blessing? Why do we spend our money on that which is not bread, that which can never satisfy, that which moth and rust does corrupt, and thieves break in and steal? When God is saying you have an opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven for all eternity, what price are we willing to pay this morning? Are we willing to turn off the TV? Are we willing to unsubscribe from Netflix? Are we willing to stop watching those movies that we always seem to rationalize? Oh, oh, it's R-rated. Everybody watches R-rated movies. The devil is a liar. You're being polluted. Are we willing to gouge out our eyes? To safeguard what enters into these eye gates that then enters into our soul? that we feed on, that becomes a poison, that becomes a rottenness that takes us from the love of God that Jesus wants us to know and to have. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Where are we on that spectrum today? How passionate, how ambitious, how zealous are we in dealing with those things that we know always trigger us, always trip us up, always cause us to stumble and fall, and we do it yet over and over and over again. God is saying to us today, if your right eye offend you, gouge it out. If your right hand offend you, cut it off. There's no place for apathy. There's no place for ambivalence in the heart of the follower of the true disciple of Jesus Christ. The question I want to leave us all with this morning is I ask myself, where is my passion for holiness and obedience, implicit, unquestioning, 100% obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? without rationalizing, without justifying, without making it palatable to my soul thinking in deception that I can get away with this. The devil is taking you down a road that will bring to destruction. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few there be. This is, this is it, Christian friends. 
We're living in a 21st century. One of the deacons and I were just speaking this morning about ever since COVID, our attendance has just dwindled and there are some people we just haven't seen in months. And they've used it as their excuse. Well, I'm not going to go back to church anymore. That's the day and age in which we're living. Just apathy, complacency, no, no, no desire, no zeal, no willingness to sacrifice no, no willingness to go the extra mile. No willingness to get up a little earlier and read and pray and get close to God. But there is a remnant, and I want to be part of that remnant of which Jesus said, there are a few, I say, Lord, let me be part of that few who are entering in that narrow way that I walk close with you, that I give you implicit obedience, and that I walk a holy life. Because that is the only life that is pleasing to God. That is the only life that reflects the life of the disciple that Jesus outlines in Matthew 5 through 7. May there be a yes in each and every one of our hearts today as we ask God to seal this word to our hearts. And so, Father, we thank you this morning for your word. It convicts us. It challenges us it bruises us but it's a good chastening because it is a chastening unto healing unto deliverance unto salvation we pray God that not one would turn from this word but we would embrace it we would hold it dear to our hearts that we might not sin against you you've called us to have a singular eye to love you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And Lord, you've called us huh, to baptism that pictures our death to self, our burial, that we, we were, this old nature now lies in the grave. Forgive us for allowing it to rise up when instead, Lord, you've called us to rise up, to walk in newness of life. And we pray this morning a special blessing upon Sherry as she follows you in the waters of baptism. And Lord, others that are sitting in this church who, who have not yet followed you in obedience to your commandment to be baptized, I pray that you would convict and challenge their hearts today, that they would demonstrate their willingness to obey you, that Lord, your presence would just hover over this part of the service, that your presence would be so real, not only to the one that is being baptized, but to each and every one of us as we renew our commitment to walk as those that were alive from the dead, dead to sin, dead to self, but alive unto Jesus Christ. For your honor and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen.